welcome to our first week in the book of Habakkuk. In 1999, when I was 24 years old, a movie called The Blair Witch Project came out. And for those of you who are doing the math, I'll make it easy for you. I'll be 46 this month. If you remember when it came out, you'll also remember the energy and the chatter that surrounded its release. Because the film appeared to be documentary footage recovered from a team that had gone missing looking for the Blair Witch in some deep, dark woods. Now, one of the reasons that the Blair Witch Project got so much attention was that the filmmakers intentionally obscured the genre of the movie. It was a low-budget project done by complete newcomers, so it looked like real footage. And when it premiered at Sundance, the makers of the film listed the actors as either deceased or missing. And so for a long time, there were questions about whether the film was just a scary movie or was actually the recovered footage of three long lost explorers. Now, I've always had kind of a love-hate relationship with scary movies. I've actually never seen a horror movie because I don't need more things to keep me up at night. But sometimes scary movies also fascinate me. So instead of seeing the movie, I'll read all about it in order to scratch that itch. And The Blair Witch Project was one of these movies. But these were the days before Google or search engines. So I couldn't just go to my computer and type in the questions and get the answers. And so for a long while, the Blair Witch Project remained an itch I couldn't scratch. I was so intrigued and I wasn't alone. Rumors of the movie being a documentary persisted for a long time. There were so many unanswered questions. How, when, why, what is really going on? Eventually, we all realized that the movie was fiction, and we understood that there was no mystery. It was just a made-up story that garnered a lot of attention. But my point is this. Knowing the genre, the reasons, the history, the context of something really matters. It sets us up to understand what's really going on. And it's the same thing with the book that we're going to jump into for this month, Habakkuk. Now, there's no such thing as a Blair Witch, just so you know. And perhaps your first reaction to this series is, there's no such thing as a Habakkuk. You're not alone. When I told one of my kids this week that I was working on a sermon on Habakkuk, he did not believe that it was an actual book of the Bible. Now, Habakkuk is a book of the Bible, but if you're just doing a quick flip through, you might miss it because it's super, super short, only three chapters. You'll find it near the end of the Old Testament, and it's nestled in with and included in a section of 12 short books called the Minor Prophets. The prophets are a little like the Blair Witch Project. When their history and intent and context is unknown or obscured, they often end up being misunderstood. Because they are books of prophecy, they can take on a mystique or a power that was never intended, kind of like a scary movie. And so this morning, rather than jump into the book itself, we're gonna just back up a little bit and zoom out a little bit 
to explore when and why Habakkuk was written. And we're going to do that as we talk through three things that might help you read this book. First, you're going to get the shortest history lesson on Israel that's ever been given. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what it meant to be a prophet in the times of the Old Testament. And finally, we're going to talk about the concept of covenant, which helps us to understand the relationship of God with his people, especially in the days that Habakkuk lived. Usually we read a book from the front to the back. And as we read, the plot thickens, time goes by, things move forward in time, right? Like if I read a novel, I start at the beginning and then chapter by chapter, the book leads me through the plot all the way to the end and then it's over. But the Bible works a little differently. You see, some of the books of the Bible are called narrative books and they move the plot of the story along. They tell us what happened. And basically, the first half of the Old Testament is narrative. It tells the story of the beginning of the world. It tells the story of the founding of the nation of Israel, and then the history of that nation. And here goes our quick history lesson. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It tells the story of the creation of the world. And then it tells the story of the calling of Abraham, who becomes the father of the nation of Israel. Then the narrative carries on to tell us how the children of Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, increase in number exponentially in slavery in Egypt. And then Moses comes along, who leads the ancestors of Joseph out of Egypt and eventually into the promised land where they struggle to become the people that they are called to be. Eventually, this group of slaves that have become the nation of Israel demand a king. They want to be like the nations around them, and God relents. David becomes their king, and Israel enjoys, for the first and kind of the only time in their history, some relative peace and stability, while David and his son Solomon rule for about a hundred years. After Solomon dies, the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom with two different rulers. The Northern Kingdom lasts for a couple of hundred years when Assyria becomes a superpower and defeats the kingdom, scattering the people that live there. The Southern Kingdom lasts for another 150 years until Babylon eventually overpowers Assyria and makes its way to Israel and defeats them as well. And the southern kingdom eventually ends up in exile in Babylon. So the books of 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, found at the first half of the Old Testament, tell us the stories of all of the kings that ruled the nation of Israel in the 350 years of the divided kingdom. And most of the kings were terrible kings. There were some terrible queens, or they were a flash in the pan. They ruled for about two seconds before a brother or an uncle came along and pulled the throne out from underneath them. Now, there's a little more left to the narrative or plotline of the Old Testament when the people are allowed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and temple. But the point I want to make is that while half of the Old Testament 
follows the plot line, tells the story, the rest of the Old Testament is made up of books that fit into the time of the narrative. The second half of the Old Testament fits into the first half of the Old Testament. The second half is made up of books of poetry or wisdom or prophecy that originate in the times that we've already read about. So, for instance, if you've read the book of Psalms, which many of us have, what you're reading is like a hymn book or a collection of songs that were written mostly during the time of David and Solomon. That's where it fits in the first half of the Old Testament. So, the 12 minor prophets also fit into the narrative of the first half of the Old Testament. These prophets lived in the time of the divided kingdom, during the time of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and they are trying to make sense of what is happening to the people of God in that time. This is their context. And this takes us back to Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet right at the very end of Israel's history as a kingdom. He prophesies when Babylon is about to carry the southern kingdom, the last vestige of the nation of Israel, into captivity. And knowing this history helps us locate the book of Habakkuk. It helps us understand the context. It helps us figure out exactly what Habakkuk is talking about. You see, sometimes books of prophecy have been used to interpret our times or treated as though they have some kind of special wisdom about our current individual or historical circumstances. But that's comparable to treating a scary movie like a documentary, and it gives the words in the book the wrong kind of power. Now, that doesn't mean that Habakkuk doesn't have anything to say to us today or any wisdom to give us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing a sermon series on it. But doing the work of understanding the context helps us glean what exactly the appropriate message is for our time. So Habakkuk is speaking to a nation under threat, a nation that is feeling the heavy breath of the powerful Babylonians breathing down their neck. Habakkuk is also speaking to a nation that has this foundational narrative of being chosen, of being rescued, of being formed, of being a mighty nation. But now they're feeling as though God has completely forgotten them as they see the end of their nationhood on the horizon. Habakkuk is written at a crisis point in the history of Israel an ancient way of being is coming to an end. A kingdom of 500 years. The future is threatening the past. For 500 years, they have lived one storyline, and now all of that is in jeopardy. And this moment of crisis leads Habakkuk to encounter God, to try to figure out what all of this means when the usual signposts, securities, and safety mechanisms fall away. And I think that's a message we can relate to, that feeling of crisis. Global pandemic, anyone? But you know, the gift of crisis is also that it invites us to locate our story in a larger context. This is how we make sense of Habakkuk, 
but it's also how we make sense of our own lies and how we live in the middle of a plot line in which we can't see the end. We can't see the conclusion. This invitation is for us to put our present circumstances in the context of a bigger, transcendent story. Just think about the storyline of Israel from Abraham to Habakkuk. That's about 1,500 years. Think of all the babies born, all the people who got old and died, all of the jobs that were done, the meals eaten, the sleepless nights, the friendships formed, the conversations, all these beginnings and endings. And Habakkuk is a part of that story. It is held by the plot line that continues even after Habakkuk's own end. All of these beginnings and endings were held in the story of God. And so are ours. We are living through the end of something right now. We have no idea where the story of a global pandemic leads us or what it might mean for our lives or for the lives of our children. The old ways of doing things are over and it can be really unnerving and overwhelming. But Habakkuk reminds us that we do have a context. We fit in a larger storyline. We are held in the plot line of history as revealed in this book. We too are nestled in the story of God, just like those 12 minor prophets. And that's really good news as we start to look at what the book of Habakkuk has to say, because on its own, I'm warning you, it's pretty grim. So understanding the book of Habakkuk requires not just an understanding of history or context, but also an understanding of how to read a book of prophecy and what it means to be a prophet in the Old Testament. So often when we hear the word prophecy, we think of a woman with a scarf tied around her head, gazing into a crystal ball with lots of bangles on her wrists, right? It calls to mind someone who can foretell the future, who can tell us what's going to happen. But prophecy in the Bible is not primarily about seeing the future. Although there are some immediate future events foretold by prophets sometimes, but the focus is instead about pulling back the veil on God's world. Prophets are those who speak on behalf of God, who reveal what God is thinking and doing in the middle of difficult and bewildering circumstances, or who give words of warning when the nation is taking the wrong road. Maybe this will help. When my kids were smaller, one of our summertime rituals was to watch America's Got Talent. And one of our favorite acts was the neon light dancers. It looked kind of like this. Oh, there we go. Oh, oh my God. Now, the first time we saw it, 
especially because my kids were really little, it was absolutely mesmerizing. We thought it was so cool. How did they do it? What was going on? And then the lights came up and this was revealed. What was revealed when the lights came up was very different than what we saw when it was dark. With the lights on, it was clear that there was way more going on behind the scenes than we could perceive in the dark. And this is like the role of the prophet. The people of God find themselves in circumstances where things look one way, and the prophet is the person who turns on the lights in the auditorium and reveals what's going on behind the scenes. The dark auditorium is living in the world with only present history and events available. It looks like one thing, but the auditorium alight reveals that there's something else going on, that something more is at work in the circumstances of everyday life. Prophecy reveals what is going on in the spiritual realm and prophets speak for God revealing where God is and what God is up to in present circumstances. Unfortunately, the prophets in these 12 little books in the Old Testament almost always bring bad news from God, which is probably why you haven't heard a lot of preaching from them because they're usually really depressing. And Habakkuk, in particular, lives and prophesies at the end of the kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom has already disappeared when they were defeated by Assyria, and the south can see the dust from the Babylonian armies coming up over the hills toward them. And in the ancient Near East, the nations believed that a god was attached to the nation who served that god. So each nation served a god, and the god they served would use that nation to increase the god's rule by defeating other nations, by crushing them. And when a nation was defeated, it meant that their God was also defeated. Jeffrey Nyhouse says this, Monarchs claimed that they had achieved success because his God had fought on his side against the foe. So what happened when they were defeated and their cities sacked? The fundamental explanation was that the gods had abandoned them. So... You can understand in this context what it is that Habakkuk is struggling with to make sense of. If their God is the God, how can it be that they are facing defeat? What's going on? And this is one of the major themes of Habakkuk. Bewilderment. Why is it that God's people are not immune from suffering, from defeat? What does it mean when it feels like God has abandoned us? When we are in the company of the losers? What does it mean when those who seem to do the wrong thing keep getting ahead? Has God jumped ship? Is he defeated? Are we left alone? It can be so bewildering when all we can see are the dancing neon men and have no sense of the hands that pull the strings. Now in the book of Habakkuk, God does pull back the curtain. 
God does flip on the lights. God does reveal that there is more going on. But it's not really the message that Habakkuk wants to hear. Now, one of the ways that Habakkuk and really all of the prophets make sense of the fact that it feels like God has left them is through their understanding of covenant. So let's go way back again in Israel's history. When we do this, we see that uh, Israel's relationship with God is given shape by the way of covenant making. So a covenant was a way of establishing a relationship between two parties in order to make possible what couldn't be possible if one side were left on their own. It was a mutually beneficial relationship that was held together by shared participation. Each party agreed to a certain kind of responsibility in order to make that relationship work and in order to benefit not just themselves, but their covenant partner. So if we go back in the history of Israel to the time when God calls Abraham, we read that God promises that he will make the descendants of Abraham to number more than the stars in the sky and that these descendants will live in God's ways in order to bring all of creation back into relationship with God. So God will give Abraham descendants and these descendants will do God's work of reconciliation in the world. The relationship is participatory and mutual. And then God establishes and confirms this promise, this mutually beneficial relationship by making a covenant with Abraham. God re-establishes this relationship with the people of Israel when they are rescued from Egypt. In the giving of the Ten Commandments, God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. And there are blessings attached to fulfilling their part of the deal, to following those Ten Commandments, not practicing idolatry, looking after one another, not murdering, not committing adultery, not coveting, not lying. But there are also curses that are attached to disobedience. And here's a snippet of that from Deuteronomy 28. It says this, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all his commands that I am giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. Your towns and your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops will be blessed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be blessed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed. But here's the other side of the agreement. But if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God, and do not obey all the commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come and overwhelm you. Your towns and your fields will be cursed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be cursed. Your children and your crops will be cursed. The offspring of your herds and your flocks will be cursed. Wherever you go, And whatever you do, you will be cursed. And the Lord will cause you to be defeated by your enemies. You will attack your enemies from one direction, but you will scatter from them in seven. 
and you will be an object of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Pretty grim stuff, right? The prophets remind the people of this covenant. They warn that if the people of God do not fulfill their end of the covenant relationship, that they will find themselves on the receiving end of some very nasty circumstances. And you'll remember that almost all of the kings, all of the leaders in this time in Israel's history were terrible kings. They did not follow the covenant. They practiced idolatry and they mistreated one another. And so when the people don't listen to the prophets and they're defeated by their enemies, the prophets make sense of these grim circumstances by referring back to the covenant. The nation has not followed the rules, and so they are now suffering the consequences of their actions. But that still leaves the question, what about God? Does that mean that along with the nation, God has also been defeated? What is going on behind the scenes that makes sense of God's part in this? What about God's part in this covenant relationship? Well, Habakkuk gives us a window into what God is up to. Listen to what God says. Look around at the nations. Look and be amazed. For I am doing something in your day, something you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you about it. I am raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people, and they will march across the world and conquer other lands. And so... Habakkuk speaks God's word and reveals that the curses promised to the disobedient nation of Israel are happening now. They will be defeated by other nations. They have failed to keep their part of the covenant relationship. But there's also something interesting going on here because from God's point of view, it's not actually the nation of Babylon that's defeating Israel or bringing defeat on Israel, it's God. God says, I am doing something. I am raising up the Babylonians, which means that unlike other gods in the ancient Near East, the defeat of Israel does not mean the defeat of God. Instead, God says that God is actually using the nation of Babylon for God's purposes. And because God is not defeated, neither is God's promise to renew the earth defeated. You see, God is honoring the parameters of the covenant, but God is also revealing that the failure of Israel as the covenant partners will not determine the outcome of the story. It will not defeat or sideline God, and it will not deter God from fulfilling God's side of the covenant. This kingdom might come to an end, but God does not come to an end. And because God does not come to an end, God's promise to make all things new does not come to an end. It is not confined to the nation of Israel. And so in this judgment is the ring of hope. This chapter might be over, but the story is not over. In fact, the great irony is that the failure of Israel to fulfill their part of the covenant actually 
opens up space for hope for another faithful covenant partner to come alongside God. Embedded in this ending, there is also the hope of a new beginning. And that new covenant partner does come. Luke 22 tells us the story of the first communion service. Around a table with his disciples, the night before he dies, Jesus takes the bread and says this, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he says, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. It's an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Hundreds of years later, Jesus becomes the faithful covenant partner where Israel has failed. Jesus becomes the covenant partner that Israel could not be. And this meal now becomes one of the ways that God reveals to us what is up behind the scenes, that God will absolutely fulfill God's promise to make all things new. Jesus invites us to be a part of this. In this passage, he says, do this in remembrance of me. He invites future generations. He invites us to participate in this new covenant. Because just like Israel, sometimes we sit bewildered in our circumstances. We suffer through endings and we struggle to know where God is. And so we are welcome. And that's just the intro. Welcome to our series on Habakkuk. So this overview of Habakkuk brings us today to the Lord's Supper. Just like Ephesians brought us to the Lord's Supper. Just like Leviticus and the Gospels and Summer Sundays and Winter Sundays bring us back to the Lord's Supper. And these Sundays that plod through a pandemic bring us here to the Lord's Supper. Habakkuk reminds us that Israel was not a faithful partner. Maybe your days this week have reminded you that you are not a faithful covenant partner. You need Jesus, the one who's faithful. This meal is part of our identity. It's to remind us of who we are, of whose we are. We belong to Jesus. We follow Jesus. And Jesus was the faithful covenant partner who invites us now to eat with him. And the thread of memory through this meal goes back to the early days of God shaping his people when he saved them from slavery. And he invited us to eat this meal to remember that we were once slaves, but God redeemed us. And then when Israel was lost, wandering through the wilderness with no source of food, God rained bread down on them in the wilderness. Remember? And Jesus told them that it was his father who gave them the manna, the bread, and he, Jesus, was that bread. Jesus does this interesting thing where he accordions time. And in a sense, that's what the Lord's Supper does. It takes us back to remember what we, that we've been redeemed and then takes us forward to when Jesus will come again. We keep coming back to eat together. 
even though now we are scattered, we eat together in this way to remember a God who redeemed us and who will come again to make everything right. And we remember as we eat. So come, let's eat together. Jesus took the bread and gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to all generations. We thank you for the ways that you nourish us and sustain us as we follow you. Thank you, Jesus, for your body broken. We are feeling broken these days. Amen. So go ahead and have some bread. And if you're with someone else, you can give them the bread and say, Christ's body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so, Jesus, we thank you for creating a new covenant with your blood. Thank you for inviting us in. Amen. So go ahead and take a drink of your wine or your juice. And if you're with someone else, you can give them the cup and say these words, Christ's blood poured out for you.